$200 bed sheet that can be plugged into the grounding port of an electrical outlet. It will help with any arthritic type health disorders and relieve chronic pain. An $85 bag of crystals that can treat infertility. Although you do get eight crystals in that bag, so that's really just over $10.50 per crystal. A small price to pay for that family you always wanted. A $66 jade egg you're supposed to stick in your, well, I'll let you use your imagination. That's supposed to improve hormonal imbalance. These are three health and wellness items that have been sold or endorsed by Gwyneth Paltrow's fashion, beauty, and wellness brand, Goop. According to a watchdog group called Truth in Advertising, these are three of 50 items sold or endorsed by Goop that make health and disease treatment claims that aren't exactly corroborated by science. Want to hear something scary? Gwyneth's website is read by over 1.8 million people every month. That's a lot of people. I don't mean to be hating on Gwyneth Paltrow. I like Shakespeare in Love. I'll re-watch Sliding Doors if I'm in the right mood. Even her duet with Huey Lewis is a bit of a guilty pleasure of mine. But I'm not sold on the idea that people should be taking health advice from her, or any other media outlet, that blur the lines between education and entertainment, or are openly cavalier with things like science and fact. Often the descriptions of health and wellness products, like the ones I mentioned, will be lightly peppered with some scientific fact or reasoning. The problem is, is that the space between is filled with something else. And the people buying these products either can't tell the difference, or maybe even worse, are choosing these alternative products out of a distrust of actual science. This isn't an American phenomenon either. In August of 2017, the Ontario Science Centre conducted a survey asking Canadians about their science literacy and where they obtain reliable scientific information. The results show a growing climate of mistrust and misinformation. One-third of Canadians consider themselves science illiterate. Nearly one in three Canadians don't understand, believe in, or trust science reported in the news. Four in ten Canadians believe science is a matter of opinion, while three in four Canadians believe scientific findings can be used to support any position. Oh boy. So why am I bringing this up, especially on a podcast for lab professionals? Well, it's because you are the solution, or at least part of it. According to the same survey, 8 in 10 Canadians want to know more about science and how it affects our world, and nearly 9 out of 10 Canadians say they trust scientists. So if we're going to save the world from accidentally electrocuting themselves with their $200 grounded bedsheets, it looks like we've got a job to do. I'm Kathy Bowers, and you're listening to The Objective Lens. The first time I actually sat down in the studio in front of a big TV camera, I'm going, what am I doing? I mean, <laughs> it, was, it was insane. But what I remembered, and this is something that everybody listening should realize, is that no matter where you are, it always comes down to the family dinner table. Because if you can explain your science to 
your parents or to your grandparents or maybe even to your children, then you can do it for everybody. That's the voice of Jason Tetro. Jason, or as he's better known, the germ guy, has been researching health-related microbiology and immunology for over 25 years. He regularly writes for the Huffington Post Canada and has regular appearances on CBC Radio and SiriusXM. Between all this, he has also authored two best-selling books. Jason is one of the most recognizable voices in the realm of science communication, and it's a passionate voice. And this passion had a very early beginning. I have an interesting story as to how I got into science, and that is because science got to me first. And by that, I mean, when I was four years old, I actually almost died, and it was an infection. Now, if we had the technology today, that, uh, back then, that we have today, uh, I would have known that it was probably just an adenovirus that led to the high fever, which would have led to proper treatment. But unfortunately, back in the 1970s, there was none of that. And I was very curious. What was it that possibly killed me? And over time, I kind of grew into this whole understanding of science. I didn't realize it before, but it was so much larger than I thought. It wasn't just something got into me and infected me and almost killed me. It was this amazing scope of the world around me, and I just wanted to dive right into that. And so I did. And by the time I was a teenager, I had this sort of dream that I wanted to help prevent people from dying from different types of infections. And back in the 1980s, the big virus of infection back then was HIV. And so uh, you know how you have those seven-year-olds who are saying, you know, I want to be a firefighter and I want to be a, uh, you know, a, a dentist, that type of thing. Well, I wanted to be the guy that cured HIV. I didn't. But what it did give me was an opportunity to really immerse myself into the sciences. And so in 1987, when I actually started working in a research laboratory, uh, it really paved the path for me to continue. And over the years, um, you know, I worked in microbiology, immunology, food safety. Uh, as the years progressed, I got into antibiotic resistance, environmental microbiology, and in the 2000s, I ended up getting into infection control, hand hygiene, and eventually into the public spread of microbes amongst people. And at that point, I realized that, you know, this is so much more than um, a virus and an immune system. This is a social issue. And really, in the last 10 years, I've focused so much on the social impact of science as opposed to just simply the hardcore. I mean, I'm still very devoted to the hardcore mechanisms and details. Everything I talk about is mechanism-based. But I tell you something, when you bring it into a social perspective, you actually start to see not only interest, but also changes in behavior. And as I've been lucky enough to do, policy at a government level. So Jason started out as a pure scientist, but figured out that an important part of the work he wanted to do and the impact he wanted to make required him to be able to communicate science to the public. And so his career at that point starts to pivot. When I was working at the University of Ottawa back in 2006, we, um, we ended up getting a phone call from one of the local TV stations. And we were asked if we could do a, a two-part segment on germs. Now, for me, 
because I wanted that social perspective, I didn't want it to be just some hardcore science always in the lab. And so I made a deal with the, uh, with the reporter, Timothy Walker, who is just an amazing woman. Essentially, we had to play parts. She was going to play that person who is a germaphobe, who's always scared, doesn't even want to touch an elevator button. And I was going to be, now you have to understand, at the time I had long hair and people kind of thought I was kind of like a, a younger, fatter Johnny Depp. So I played a bit of a Jack Sparrow-like character. And so we, we put that air on and when it went to air, people just ate it up. And so that actually led to this idea that we could have fun with science. And over the next uh, couple of years, what ended up happening is that I became a regular on the local TV station where I would go live on air at the news at noon. I would talk a little bit about something to do with microbiology as it you know, pertains to the public. And then I would take calls from the public. And that was such an incredible experience because what it did is it showed me not only the interest level of the people who are listening and watching, but more importantly, where are they in terms of their understanding and how can I help them to have a better understanding? And so as that progressed, I became known as, um, you know, the maven of microbiology or considering germs were still considered to be like the X-Files, the molder of microbiology. But unfortunately, the host at the time decided she was going to call me the germ guy. The name stuck. While Jason doesn't love the moniker, in part to its negative connotation to the microbial world, it did make his subject matter more approachable to the public. You can hear why his segment took off. Jason's animated, passionate, and funny. I really enjoyed our chat, as you can tell. Even with his public-friendly new name, Jason still encountered challenges getting his message out. As it turns out, there are inherent problems with trying to communicate science to the lay public. I have to tell you something. The indifference that we see in the public... While researchers and academics might say it's the public's fault, and back in 1985 there was this huge kerfuffle about how you know, there was a lack of public understanding of science, at the end of the day, it's science's fault. <laughs> science has done this to itself, and the reason for that goes back to the days of Copernicus and Galileo, because they were effective in being able to share science with the public, and they were doing a great job of it. The only problem was is that the church didn't really like that. And so they ended up being um, harassed, uh, you know, put in jail. Their books were banned. And eventually it became very clear that the public had no interest in science. So the scientists themselves decided, okay, well, to heck with this. We're going to create our own community, the academic community, and we're just going to talk amongst ourselves. While this approach certainly helped with little issues, like persecution from religious organizations, it didn't do much for helping the public to understand science and its role in the world around them. To accomplish that, Jason says you need to talk with the public, and there are two parts to doing that well. The first is about the science itself. The primary objective is always the accuracy of the science, and scientists are good at that part. But the other component has to do with managing the audience and nurturing acceptance. This is where many scientists struggle, as many feel this is outside of their skill set. But the solution isn't anything overly complicated, 
From Jason's perspective, it's all about storytelling and honing the ability to analogize. But the problem is, is that science is not absolute. And so we're constantly seeing information being put out into the public through journalism that ne- doesn't necessarily um, corroborate one another. You have these conflicts that occur. To illustrate this point, Jason asked if I drank coffee. I answered, of course, about two cups a day. He then questioned whether that was good or bad for me. As I paused to consider the answer, he jumped in, mentioning studies that demonstrated numerous health benefits. I felt pretty good about my coffee intake. A second later, he was referencing others that indicated it very well might kill me. Oh. Complicating matters is the rise of politically motivated anti-science movements. And now you've got these grassroots political pushes that come that are specifically out to counter science. And we already know about so many of them. We've got the anti-vaccine movements. We've got the anti-GMO movements. We've got the climate change deniers. Um, We've got people who think that antibiotics in animals is perfectly fine. We're not going to have to worry about resistance crises, right? And if that's not enough, let's have good old-fashioned business jump on in. And now finally, and this is probably the worst case uh, when it comes to what the problem is with science and the public, it's what I call the goop factor. So what happens is you use a little bit of science, just a little bit, and then you make massive profits by selling products that essentially are based on that little bit of science, right? But the minute that you start actually incorporating even more science into it, They will reject you, and they will tell you you don't know what you're talking about. Here's the thing. Some of these products actually work, just not for the reasons companies like Goop purport them to. And that is the other part of the problem. The Goop movement would rather you believe in some kind of abstract spirituality than to take the time, maybe an extra paragraph, just to explain that your brain actually controls your stress levels, and shows you that by, in, you know, by inhaling these herbs, the olfactory system is helping to reduce the inflammation. Or by taking that tea, it's helping to reduce the inflammation and maybe increase the serotonin levels. And that's the problem, right? Because from a scientific perspective, it works just the same as the abstract. But because there's been this huge gap, people just run away from the science, and they prefer to embrace the abstract. And that's why we need to be getting the science out there regularly in storytelling so that people are more comfortable with the science and, although they may not reject, at least harmonizes with the abstract. Science is not an opinion, but scientists offer an opinion about science. And so what's happened is that that opinion has been misplaced in the public. And the thing is, is that we need to somehow figure out a way to get around that. And the best way for any MLT, and in fact any healthcare worker to appreciate this, is something that we know as the differential diagnosis. So a doctor will tell you one thing, and then the doctor might go, hmm, and walk away and consult with other doctors for a differential diagnosis. In other words, these are the symptoms I'm seeing. I think it's this. 
What do you think? What do you think? There was an entire television show called House based on differential diagnosis. House is also the only place you'll find surgeons performing their own lab tests. But that's a whole other story. Jason's point is that when you want to confirm information is accurate, you look for other corroborating sources. Well, part of the problem is that we just don't have enough scientists out there sharing their expertise with the public. And we need them. So when the public see and hear something that may or may not be true, they can find multiple credible voices out there that don't sound like Gwyneth Paltrow. Here is where we start to hone in on a solution. And here is where we find your role. I'm great at what I do and I have a great time, but I'm what they call an anecdote. I'm an outlier. I'm I'm irreverent. I'm whatever you want to call it because I'm one. And I need more people to be able to corroborate, more people to share the science, more people to get out there and actually start stating these things so that when germ guy says something, you can actually corroborate that or you can say, yes, in actual fact, he only got the story about 90% correct because there's a little bit more you might want to know. And then we start developing this community of science communicators who all of a sudden are now putting out the mechanisms into the, into the public realm such that the interpretation of that becomes harmonized. And that's really now what we need to do. He goes on. Here is your rallying cry. Well, I'm going to continue to populate the airwaves, the internet cables, the bookstores, all of these things. I need everybody who's out there to try and do the same thing in their own circles. And it doesn't matter where you do it. It doesn't matter what the subjects are. As long as you're passionate about it, I want you to share because that's the only way we're going to be increasing the amount of science out there and we're going to be making those differences that we need so that that 43% or half of the population that think that science is an opinion will start to actually have the opinion that we are the ones that are giving the necessary information to make their lives better. And quite honestly, I can't imagine anyone better to do this than an MLT. Okay, that last line gave me chills. I had to follow up on that and ask him why. What an MLT does, and this is going to sound a little abstract and I do apologize, but we see people for the most part as being skin, right? We, we see eyes, we see hair, we see skin, we might see clothes, unless it's Kim Kardashian. And the thing is, is that that's all we see. But an MLT sees what's inside of us. And so an MLT, at the end of the day, is the person who knows us better than we know ourselves. So gauntlet thrown. Are you willing to pick it up and accept Jason's challenge? I hope so. If you are, Jason has five tips for helping you effectively communicate with the public. I'm going to sit back and let Jason do the talking for a bit because he's so articulate and passionate as he explains this. So don't be surprised if you don't hear my voice for a bit. Before we get into it, I do want to remind you of something Jason said at the top of the show. This isn't about you getting up on a stage or standing in front of a video camera. 
It would be great if you did, and these tips will work in that arena as well. But it all starts with talking around the dinner table, talking to the people in our lives. Okay, Jason, take it away. The first one, it it is education. And when I say education in this case, I'm not talking about scholastic education. I'm talking about putting it in the brain of somebody so that they bring it back through memory retrieval. And this is probably the easiest thing for someone to do because essentially all we're doing is we're talking about the mechanism. We're talking about, you know, the reality of what's going on uh, and possibly some of the information that has happened both in the past and in the present and how it may, you know, impact us in the future. And I think pretty much everybody who's listening can do that. that. That's not an issue. The second one, however, which is known as enrichment, is where things start to get a little bit iffy. Because enrichment, by its definition, means that the person who is taking in the information somehow finds a way to associate it with their life. And that can be really difficult at times. Because if you're talking about, say, um, you know, this uh, new phlebotomy technique that's happened, well, how is that really going to relate to enriching somebody's life? The fact of the matter is, is that the last thing anybody wants is a big hematoma on their arm from having, you know, a really poor phlebotomy. So maybe sometimes, you know, using the butterflies is actually going to be much better because it's going to reduce the potential for uh, a hematoma. So instead of looking at from the perspective of the science, why not simply say, you know, your arm's not going to be all bruised up, or maybe you can simply say um, it'll, it'll make your skin look even better because it'll just have a small hole instead of a big lump. You know, something along those lines. You're enriching the person by telling them about this information. Uh, the third, um, and, and this is really something that is being heavily debated right now, is engagement. When you're sitting at the dinner table, as I have with my mom, I will convey something, and she will engage me. And <laughs> depending on how she's feeling that day, it'll be a really great engagement, or it'll be like, oh, my God, i got to start over. <laughs> so the thing is, any kind of engagement when you're doing science communication is a good thing. And that'll give you an understanding as to how you can get that acceptance. Because if the questions that are being asked happen to fall away from what you're trying to convey and heading into more of an ideological, you can always find ways to shift it back. No, that's not what I mean. What I'm talking about is this, okay? Um, More importantly, what engagement does is it gives you an opportunity to sort of track your metrics, as they like to say in Link Today's lingo, which essentially means how is your audience um, participating? How is your audience finding what you're doing? And, and, And how much is the audience taking in? You guys still with me? Just checking. Okay, three tips down. Education, enrichment, and engagement. Two to go. Back to Jason. The fourth one, and we've talked about this a little bit, is the entertainment factor. Um, And this really has to do with the idea that, you know, if you are going to be talking about science, you've got to make sure that you're keeping it in the perspective of, you know, the social and cultural interests of that population. 
you know, if I'm going down to uh, Texas, uh, probably not going to talk about hockey all that much, but I'm sure going to talk about football. And, you know, if I'm going out to the West Coast, I'm probably going to talk a little bit more about the entertainment industry, whereas if I'm, you know, say in Newfoundland talking about it, I'm probably going to have a little bit more fun talking about the, uh, the, the culture of what it's like to be a Newfoundlander and you know, maybe bring up kissing a fish. The entertainment value um, is really just to make sure that you're hooking your audience into what you're saying. And that just takes time. That takes some research. That takes a little bit of effort. But if you're doing it amongst your friends and your family, like most people who are listening are going to be doing, you already know what their social and cultural interests are. And you can just analogize into that context. The final one, um, and, and this is probably the most important one, is empathy. And the reason I say that it's most important is because um, you have to put yourself in their shoes. You have to understand where the information is coming to them and, and how they're perceiving that information. So that if you have someone who is Uncle Eddie right-wing dialogue, um, then you're probably not going to get too far in terms of being able to convert that person. However, you still might be able to do that. You may just have to analogize and, and enrich in a different way. So whenever you find yourself in front of an audience, whether it be across the dinner table or in front of thousands uh, on stage, just try and imagine where they're coming from. And that's going to help you tremendously. So there you have them, the five E's of science communication, education, enrichment, engagement, entertainment, and empathy. New tools for you to use the next time you are trying to explain your work to someone around the dining room table. If you think you are ready to move beyond the dining room table, you're going to need a platform. Luckily, they do exist. One such platform is a national event that may be a great opportunity for lab professionals looking to engage with the public. Science Rendezvous is the first kind of introduction to the general public to the spaces where science happens on a large scale. So um, typically universities have had their outreach events where they try to invite the public. And in the past, it's been mostly, you know, kids of scientists themselves or family members or people who are already very invested in STEM. But what we try to do is bring everybody together to increase our scope and get into the general public and bring them to the research institution. So um, it's more successful at reaching people who might not otherwise already be participating in STEM outreach activities. And as a result, we get to you know, influence more people in the general public and get them face-to-face with people who are doing the research in Canada. That's Katie Miller, Executive Director of Science Rendezvous an organization who works with Canada's top research institutes to bring science out from the labs and into the streets. It's the country's largest celebration of science, with over 300 events across 30 cities. They work to promote science awareness and increase science literacy in Canada by allowing public access into otherwise closed-off laboratories and research facilities. Science Rendezvous, um, you know, is an opportunity for scientists to reach the public directly, right? So there's no middleman. There's no um, 
it's not a scientific paper that has to be sent out. It's a scientist talking to people directly. So um, it's an opportunity to kind of bypass the traditional methods of getting information and research out to the public, and it's done by the scientists themselves. And it really started as a grassroots event where scientists came together and saw the need to reach to the public um, directly as opposed to the traditional means of writing papers and having their research in scientific journals, which really is only um, shared with in the scientific community and very rarely reaches the general public. Much like Jason, Katie believes that science communication with the public plays an important role. Public access to science education is so important because the access to misinformation is so readily available. Um, especially in terms of healthcare sciences and that kind of thing, you know, people who have misinformation agendas are strong and people like to uh, propagate things that maybe are not necessarily uh, true. So having scientists become actively involved in propagating scientific truths, I, th- I feel, is extremely important in our society today. Um, I come from a background, actually, of dental hygiene, And uh, I find that, you know, dental hygienists are face-to-face with the general public every day. So we get to practice our uh, communication skills. And I feel that the same thing for uh, researchers and scientists is so important where they get face-to-face with the public and have to practice their communication skills um, so that they know and they can communicate their findings effectively. Public access to science matters even more outside of urban areas. Science Rendezvous brings their programming to Nunavut and hosts events with visiting and community scientists. So our northern program uh, was started several years ago where we had um, one of our leading scientists go up to uh, Inuvik and Tuktoyaktuk and uh, provide some unique experiences to remote communities that might not otherwise have access to a Science Rendezvous event. Um, uh, the Aurora Research Institute in Inuvik actually hosts an amazing Science Rendezvous event, and they put that on every year, and it's grown, and um, they really bring in the whole community. But there's still a lot of um, remote communities that may not have the same resources that Inuvik has, so bringing small-scale Science Rendezvous festivities to those communities um, we feel is important to have that cross-Canada inclusion. We can't all be the germ guy, confidently and eloquently explaining science to the public in such an engaging way. The man has a certain talent in this regard. But as a scientist yourself, you can do a better job of communicating your work, your passion areas, to the people around you. Start at the dining room table and expand from there. Use Jason's five E's to help you be more approachable and understandable. And maybe, just maybe, you start your own journey as a science communicator. And there's no telling where that might take you. Jason really believes that lab professionals have an important role to play here. You could say he's a fan. I love MLTs, and um, I've worked with them on and off over the last 30 years that, um, well, let's just say, in as much as I really enjoy being um, the hardcore academic researcher, 
I absolutely love what an MLT brings to the table because there is confidence, there is passion, and more importantly, there's a way of taking the strange academic weirdness that comes from people like myself and putting it into something that is actually coherent and usable um, in, in both the, the, the actual mechanisms and, 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 and protocols, but also when it comes to publishing. There are a couple of papers that I've published where I may never have actually gotten there if I hadn't had the help of NLTs. Jason recognizes that science communication doesn't come naturally to researchers, academics, and clinical practitioners. He is a naive. But he knows from his own experience that this skill of engaging the public can be developed and honed. As long as the passion is there, it's achievable. I want to share all the passion that I have for this with everybody that's out there. And I know it's a process. But for every MLT who's listening, I just need to say this one thing. Science communication is no different than perfecting a bullet blood smear. I still can't do it. It still looks like an amoeba with pseudopods. But for everybody who has been able to figure out how to make a bullet smear look perfect, you can do the same thing with science communication. You just need more practice and you need the opportunity to just simply share what you believe, share your passion, share the science, and and it's going to work out perfectly. I enjoyed my conversation with Jason a lot. It's hard not to when you're talking to someone who is so passionate about what they're doing. At the end of the interview, I still wanted to hear more. I wanted others to get a chance to hear more. So we've invited him to speak at LabCon this year, May 25th to 27th in Windsor, Ontario. You can find more information at labcon.csmls.org. I hope you'll be able to join us and meet Jason for yourself. He's a hoot. Improving our ability to converse about the lab, the role we play, and the science behind it is important. It's important to help raise the public profile of lab professionals, something we are sorely lacking. It's important because the public needs more scientists providing accurate information and corroborating each other. There's a void out there. If we don't fill it, the Gwyneths of the world will. And I'm not sure how well I'll sleep at night knowing that. Even if I did own a set of those grounded bedsheets, which I don't. The Objective Lens is written and produced by Michael Grant and myself, Kathy Bowers, and is the official podcast of the Canadian Society for Medical Laboratory Science. Administrative support by Redmilla Minor. Editorial and editing support by Erica Dow. For other episodes, supplemental content, and bonus material, visit our website at podcast.csmls.org. If you're in the medical laboratory field, you'll want to go to the website to find a link to a short quiz. By completing the quiz, you'll earn a certificate verifying professional development hours by listening to this episode. We'd love to hear from you. Come chat with us on Twitter at CSMLS or Facebook. You can find us at facebook.com slash CSMLS. Thanks for listening.